back to the Dispatch, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. Joey Ritchie and Sheila Mulliken here. We're going to be talking today about soldiers not named Todd Carter. That's a that's a, a direct way to dive right at it, isn't it? Well, uh, we're kind of riffing a little bit on a, a video that we recorded a, a few months ago. There's a video on our YouTube channel called Five generals not named Patrick Claiborne. So we find that when people come here to visit, maybe for the first time, a lot of times they've heard something about the battle. They may not have a lot of detail, but there are certain figures that seem to stand out. And Certainly Pat Claiborne is one of mm-hmm. them. And definitely, for the longest time, Todd Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I can remember the first time I came here, it was like he was the only soldier. Mm-hmm. That anybody talked about. And his is a compelling story. It's I mean, you cannot story. talk about him coming home to die without that reaching your heart. Mm-hmm. But we've come to understand that every soldier here has a story, and yeah. many of those are very, very interesting, and a lot of us make connections to some of those guys. And so we wanted you to have a chance to meet maybe somebody you've not heard about yet. Yeah. So I think we can dive in. I, I think um, there's a lot of really, really great stories that we can talk about. And this one is one of these, it's a story that there's not a lot of details surrounding this guy's life other than the fact that he was here. But it was a story when I started reading some of the little things that we did know, Mm -hmm. just caught my attention. And I said, this guy's really, he's something. Guy's 45 years old, the day of the Battle of Franklin. His name is Jackson Hawkeye. Griffith. Oh my gosh. He is in Do we know the story? Do we know how he got that nickname? Don't know the nickname. Um, he's at Company I, 25th Texas, Hiram Granbury's Brigade, Pat Claiborne's division. Mm-hmm. And they're right there in the center. Yeah. And this is the thing about Griffin. He's born in 1819. Wow. He fights in the Texas War for Independence at the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836. He's 17 years old then. You got to imagine that for some of these young guys and Granberry's brigade, just think about what those guys in the 25th Texas are looking at. There's this ragged old soldier that's standing there. I do not love thinking about a 45 year old as old, but you're right in the context. I know. Got it. Right. You know, when you're 16, 20 and 25, Mm -hmm. 45 is, is, and you've got to think like they got to be thinking right before the attack. If this guy can do it, I can do it. Right. And Griffin goes in with the best of them. He's with Granberry's brigade going forward. What's the that, that line that Hiram Granberry says right before he's killed? Never let the Texans lag in a fight. There goes Jackson Griffith right up the middle. He is going to end up being one of the roughly 7,000 Confederate casualties that day. He's going to be killed right outside the earthworks. But 45 years old the day of the battle. And he's listed in the uh, Carton files that we have. So he is certainly a soldier whose story might not get told every single day on a tour. And it, it's certainly one that maybe you work it in if there's a group of people from Texas mm-hmm. that are on the tour. But when you're sitting there and you're looking through some of our soldiers' names, to pass up a name like Hawkeye mm-hmm. is, is almost so you impossible. You've got to look at it. So who's one of your soldiers? Well, one of the people I wanted to talk about is Dr. Deering Roberts. Since we talk so much about surgery and field medicine here at Carnton, I thought his was an interesting story. He's not actually working here, but he had traveled with the 20th Tennessee, same unit that Todd Carter 
fought in, and he's actually the person who treats Todd. But I, in my my head, I always picture him as an old man because we have photographs of him when he comes back for reunions. But he's actually only 21 when he joins the Confederate Army. And when he's working here in Franklin, he's, that would only make him about 25 or 26. So he's still a really young guy. And he helps take care of the wounded here. And he is a soldier that stays behind. Several of the Most of the soldiers move on with the Army two days after this battle to Nashville. But Deering Roberts stays behind, sets up a couple of temporary hospitals in downtown he finds an old carriage and wagon shop that's got a good roof and plenty of windows he also finds a brick store and he uses the chancery courtroom so he sets up a hospital there and he's going to continue to treat these guys in the days following and after the war he stays in this area he's from nashville and Mm -hmm. he stays in nashville works as a physician has some kids but he does come back here to a reunion that happens right here at Carnton. There's a reunion in 1910. We've got a photograph that the, shows the, the him. Big, yeah. The big panoramic Right, image, when he's yeah. on um, horseback. And he makes a little speech that day and talks about all the help that people gave to the soldiers when they were taking care of them. And he says, Now to these ladies here, permit me to assure you from my inmost heart that the debt of gratitude incurred whilst I had the honor to be with you in those sad closing days of 64 can never be repaid. Day after day, I witnessed the fair daughters of Williamson bending over the rude couches, extemporized for our wounded, and whether the sufferer was from the faraway Everglades of the Land of Flowers or the Pine Ridge or Sandy Savannas of Georgia, those fair hands ministered as tenderly, lovingly, and impartially as to the wounded scion that sprang from these historic bluegrass hills and dales. They treated them all as brothers, as brothers who had fallen in their defense." Roberts died in Nashville in 1925, and he's buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Oh. And that, it's interesting that you bring him up in in this episode because he's a guy that has that one-on-one sort of contact with mm-hmm. Todd Carter. Well, and, uh, and, and other interesting, and you may be headed there, mm-hmm. were you going to talk about his brother? Because one of the things I find interesting is Deering's brother, uh, John Happy, is the man mm-hmm. that Todd was always sending his dispatches to. Right. So when he's right. writing for the uh, Chattanooga Daily Rebel under the pen name Mint Julep, he writes about life in the camp. And those are some interesting stories to read. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun to get that inside glimpse. But it's Deering Roberts' brother who's publishing those letters. And, of course, then Deering Roberts is the man who ends up treating Todd. Yeah. It's, it's such a small... And what's, what's strange is we were sitting around yesterday talking just about soldiers, mm-hmm. and we were really looking at land deeds for Ripavilla. And I was sitting there with, with the boss talking about... Um, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, Thomas Gibson lived down the street. And I said, stop. Thomas Gibson, like cousin of Brigadier General John Adams that sees mm. him lead the attack? He goes, yeah, same guy, the one that Transports escorted his home. body back. Oh, like, my gosh. I was like, oh, my goodness. And the story, that's the thing is, like, it's such a small world yeah. in this mile and a half long front here. And, right. and this, just in these 20 miles, there's so many families that are impacted by this battle. And then I've got one soldier here that is hundreds of miles away from home. Oh, wow. His name is Lieutenant James Coughlin. He is a member of General Jacob Cox's staff. He was born March 15, 1843, enlists into Company K, 24th Kentucky, in September of 1861 and signs a three-year enlistment at 18 years old. Oh, my goodness. He is promoted uh, to first sergeant pretty quickly, 
then by March 19, 1862, promoted again as a first lieutenant. By the summer of 1863, he is assigned as the Assistant Inspector General of the 1st Brigade, 3rd Division, 23rd Army Corps, Jacob Cox's staff. During the battle, he sees the soldiers of the 12th and 16th Kentucky, a lot of whom he fought with earlier in the war, or at least knew, he sees them struggling over near the cotton gin, and he rides over. And in 1897, Jacob Cox wrote this about James Coughlin. While speaking of the fight near the cotton gin, I may be permitted to make a special mention of one young hero who fell there, a brilliant type of the volunteers who shed their blood for the national cause. Lieutenant James Coughlin of the 24th Kentucky had been one of my aides through the campaigns of the year. Of humble birth and in the main self-educated, he developed military talents of a high order. His eye was quick, his judgment clear, his courage indomitable, his soldierly bearing inspiring. His reports were so true and just that he gave his chief just the help needed by one who cannot be everywhere, yet must know what is happening. He had carried my first order to Opdyke to be ready to charge in the front in case of trouble, and on his return dashed into the thickest of the melee with his old comrades of Riley's brigade, conspicuously cheering them on to regain their breastworks. He fell near the cotton gin in the moment of victory, and there his fellow staff officers and friends buried him in the darkness of night in the intervals of the fierce fighting. Oh, goodness. James Coughlin was buried right behind the cotton gin, and only after the war did he go back home to Bourbon County, Kentucky, where he's buried today. He never saw his family again. Mm. And that's... I think is such a contrast from, and you know, we said the whole episode wouldn't be about him, but Todd Carter's a soldier that dies at home surrounded by his family. Mm -hmm. James Coughlin never saw his parents or his family again. And he died only known to the soldiers that watched him die. I feel like that is, it's such a, a, and and that's not to say that his story is especially different than any of of the other 2,200 men that died here or any of the nearly 60,000 that would be mm-hmm. engaged in this campaign. But his story is still really special. Yeah, it is. And when it gets the attention of the general in charge mm-hmm. of the line, you know that there was something special about yeah, that 21-year-old. And his life's cut short by these four years that interrupted interrupted everybody else's life. But here in the third year of the war, he's killed. Cost him everything. Well, the next person I wanted to talk about was uh, Robert Bradshaw. And Robert Bradshaw was a, um, the, the story I like about him is not actually here. It's, it's at the beginning of the war. He lives in St. Joseph, Missouri. He sees a crowd tearing um, a U.S. flag to shreds. It's been ripped off the flagstaff of the post office. And then they uh, begin to set their sights on that dirty rag on Turner Hall is what they're calling it. And so Bradshaw realizes what they're going to do. He runs seven blocks to the building, locks the door, stands in front of it, tells him he's not going to let him go up there. And it, there's a, it begins to get a little bit hot and contested. And he finally says, okay, I'll go take it down, but you have to let me salute it first. And so he goes all the way up to the roof and there's some of the folks in the crowd have been drinking and so they're not in you know they're not making the best decisions but they begin to threaten him and there's a man who kind of takes charge in the crowd and he says listen if you shoot this guy 
I'll shoot you. Leave him alone. So Bradshaw gives three cheers, fires six shots, lowers the flag, and goes and hides it somewhere where it'll be safe. But that's one of the first things I read about him, and I just love that story. Mm -hmm. I like his spunk and his spirit. Robert Bradshaw had enlisted early on. He fought as a citizen soldier at Lexington, Missouri, and then um, at Shiloh. And he was commissioned to colonel, and then he's given the job of raising a new unit in Missouri, the 44th Missouri. And the 44th is initially recruited to defend Missourians. Mm -hmm. There are bushwhackers and guerrilla warfare going on everywhere. And they're sent to a town called Rolla, which is a little bit southwest of Mm -hmm. St. Louis, to defend the town against Sterling Price. But then in November, they're put on steamers for Paducah, Kentucky, and they're eventually going to end up right here in Franklin, helping to be a part of this action, they end up in a very important position. They weren't supposed to. They were Mm -hmm. supposed to be in a secondary sort of reserve position, but when the main line collapses, then they're right in the middle of the action, and Mm -hmm. they even have the job. They attempt a couple of times to retake that main line, and when they're attempting to do that, Bradshaw, with the colors in one hand and sword in the other, he leads them into the cauldron of enemy fire to try to regain that main line. And he is shot. He's riddled with bullets. He is so badly injured, his men think he's dead. And when they leave in the night, they leave him behind. And he's even reported dead in the newspaper. So on Thursday, December 8th, the St. Louis Daily Missouri Democrat runs a front-page story about the 44th Missouri and their gallantry at Franklin. It has has a whole list of the dead. It talks about how Colonel Robert Bradshaw fell dead in the ditch occupied by the enemy. And um, the final sentence says, There's not a loyal man in St. Joseph that will not delight in scattering flowers over the grave of gallant Bob Bradshaw. The problem is he's not dead. There's a woman and her daughter here in Franklin that find him two days after the battle and realize he's still alive. So they bring him in and they treat him and he ends up being able to leave here in Franklin finally in July and is able to get to Missouri just in time to muster out with his unit. He doesn't die until May of 1927. uh, and he dies in Kansas City. And on the very day that he dies, ironically, the Boston Red Sox played a doubleheader against the Philadelphia Athletics, the team destined to become Kansas City's in 1955. And in the starting lineup that afternoon for the Athletics was Ty Cobb, who played both ends of the doubleheader, mm-hmm. went two for eight. And that same afternoon against the Washington Senators, Babe Ruth launched one of his many home runs into the seats of the old Yankee Stadium. Robert Bradshaw had lived a a long life and seen a lot of changes. He's lived through Spanish-American War, Mm -hmm. World World War I. Yeah. The Roaring Twenties. Yeah. Airplanes, cars. I mean. That's the one thing that is, is, you know, we talk a lot about the soldiers that don't make it sometimes, mm -hmm. that die here. And then we have to think that there's some of these guys that go on well into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And they're born with horses and buggies. Mm -hmm. And... If they're from the South, they are born in the antebellum South. They see slavery up close and in person. They fight in the American Civil War. They survive that. Then they see Reconstruction, Mm -hmm. which must have been absolutely mind-blowing for them. Right. Well, and some of them even participate in that. I mean, they have roles to play in the Reconstruction government. Then they see Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Then they see the turn of the century. 
and they die with airplanes and automobiles mm-hmm. and radios and telephones and indoor plumbing and electricity and prohibition <laughs> prohibition Lord too of mercy. passing of the 19th amendment mm-hmm. for a lot of them and and then they live into this this new the like, right before we start to think of history that wasn't that long ago yeah we talk about the great depression and world war ii like it happened yesterday mm-hmm. but these guys were overlapping mm-hmm. that that's just incredible to think about sometimes yeah so he's my last soldier to talk about and i know he's not a regular soldier but give me the caveat it's all right brigadier general george day wagner commands the second division of the fourth army corps wagner was born in ross county ohio in September 1829. His parents, his father, John Michael, was a German immigrant. Mm-hmm. So George Wagner is a real you know, first, generation. first generation American immigrant. His family moves from Ohio to Indiana. In 1847, he marries a woman named Elizabeth Alexander. They get married, have five children in their Ooh. marriage. He's a pre-war politician. He's the leading Republican voice in the Indiana State Senate, campaigns really hard for Lincoln uh, in 60, and he is an ardent Unionist when the war breaks out. Uh, there are so many stories to tell about George Wagner before the war. Uh, and you're going to tell us all of them, aren't uh, you? I, no, I, I'm just kidding. I could tell you one, <laughs> um, but there's just this, this interesting episode right there as Indiana, the State Senate, is called back for a special session. And he stands up in the middle of this massive argument about supporting secession or protecting Southern Democratic interests or having sympathies for mm-hmm. uh, Confederate sympathizers. And, and George Wagner stands up and uh, he calls a couple of the members of the state Senate traitors. Ooh. And when they kind of back away and, and they ask if the uh, attack was personal, George Wagner says, if it fitted the gentleman, it was personal. And, it, Whoops. It, you know, he's he is as devoted to this as he can be. Uh, a couple days later, uh, he stands up and speaks, and he, he talks of mudsills and slave drivers. And he supposed that it would be but a breakfast job to hang every traitor in the state. And he was sorry to have to say that a great number of his fellow citizens would be disappointed that there would be too many that would want to go and deliver the whipping that the whole South needed. Oh, wow. You know, we, we talk about the fact that every soldier fights for his own reasons, mm-hmm. and some of those reasons have very little to do with the politics of the time and yeah. more to do with their own personal ethos. But clearly, George Wagner is 100% he is a union with man. the pro- program. Yeah. yeah, A union man through and through. Wow. Um, and when he goes, he goes off to war, he is made the colonel of the 15th Indiana Infantry, heads out, goes and starts the war out in, uh, really out in the western portion of Virginia before it becomes West Virginia. He mm-hmm. fights at Cheat Mountain, famously against Robert E. Lee, um, but he doesn't see a lot of action. And that's the thing with George Wagner. He doesn't get to see action. And most of his early engagements at the Battle of Cheap Mountain doesn't get in until the fighting's already done. Uh, then when he participates in the Kentucky campaigns, uh, he gets to Perryville, and they won't put his brigade in action. And there's this wonderful story that shows up where a soldier was saying that he learned the depths of George Wagner's knowledge and use of profanity <laughs> as, That's he, awesome. as he watched 
because Wagner could literally see the Federal Army kind of caving in as as they made the attacks at, at Perryville, essentially arguing, why are we not going in? And they <sighs> wouldn't put him forward, and he just tore into them. And then finally, he gets into the action. He gets to see um, what this war looks like at Stones River. And there he does some things at Stones River that I think are just mind-blowing. Uh, there's one account, and it comes from a soldier writing about the Battle of Franklin, that says that there at Stones River, bullets passed through his jacket and would rattle out whenever he would move after the war, for, after the battle for months on end. You know, is it apocryphal? Probably. Mm, it's a good story. But it's a great story to think about this guy just standing up in the middle of the round forest and holding on. George Wagner goes on to fight at Missionary Ridge, mm -hmm. and there he watches his brigade struggle to get up the slopes, and as they're going forward, they're taking all this devastating fire, and finally he just orders them to go in, all in, and they charge the hill, and his regiment is going to have several soldiers awarded the Medal of Honor, but it's George Wagner that brings them there, mm -hmm. takes part in the Atlantic campaign. Uh, he will see the march from Dalton and uh, Georgia to Atlanta. He fights at Kennesaw Mountain, watches his brigade get just absolutely ravaged at mm -hmm. the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. He's riding forward with them in this ill-fated attack against a very fortified Confederate position. And then he shows up in the Tennessee campaign, now commanding a division as a brigadier general. And it's at Franklin that, you know, I've often kind of said is, this is, if he makes one mistake in the entire war, it's, it's right here at Franklin. And this is where things fall apart for him. For, for better or for worse, his men are left out front and in about 500 yards in advance of the federal position. They're overrun. Uh, and George Wagner has a part to play in the decisions that influenced what happened that day. And it's not for us to sit here and say whether he did the wrong thing or the right thing. But it's how he is remembered after this that makes it so interesting because he was as good of a soldier as you could find and then all of a sudden now he's got this mark on mm -hmm. his reputation after the battle goes to nashville he resigns from command of the second brigade uh, and he goes home back to indiana and the williamsport warren republican on december the 22nd 1864 wrote general george wagner was in the city probably indianapolis mm -hmm. yesterday Having been in the service for four years, service too of the most severest and most arduous kind, he is now spending a few days with his family. Paper also talks about how his wife had been in pretty uh, poor health, but it continues to say, of all the officers that Indiana has sent into the field, none have done more to sustain her credit than General Wagner. As he has risen in rank, his capacity has developed itself until he now ranks among the fighting earnest generals of the army as one of the very best. And then, of course, he gets back into politics as the war ends and goes on to live, I think, a life that is totally changed by the war. Mm -hmm. I think he knows what has happened at the battle, but he also understands that he was commanding men at war for roughly three years and watching them die, and that has an effect on right, that's a, a That's a weight. That yeah. you can't easily lay down. There's a level, of, uh, it's almost like a personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, how that affected him is really unclear, but he gets kind of back into politics, opens up a law office, but it closes down pretty quickly. His wife passes away uh, in April of 65. His life is kind of coming apart. 
Um, then in 1868, as one of those leading Republicans in the state of Indiana, he campaigns really hard for the Grant Colfax ticket. Mm -hmm. And he will see them win the election of 1868. And for his services in the campaign, he is essentially awarded uh, or given the opportunity to take a post as the minister to Berlin, foreign secretary or foreign ambassador. And he accepts, but before he can leave, uh, he checks into the Bates, Ho uh, Bates Hotel in downtown Indianapolis. And he is struck with what is called nervous prostration. Mm. And he's prescribed a mixture, um, 20 grains of quinine, one ounce tincture of yellow jessamine, which is essentially a muscle relaxer, mm -hmm. and a half a pint of brandy. And it's supposed to be measured out and taken every two hours. Um, the prescription was noted as being befitting to the general's troubles. And then he went to his room and in the space of time in which he was supposed to take a single dose, he drank half of it. Oh my goodness. And the effect was a complete relaxation of his whole system. And within minutes, his organs began to fail and he was paralyzed and he would die by about 1030 that night alone by himself in downtown Indianapolis. Oh, that breaks my heart. And he leaves behind his children. And he leaves behind a legacy that, who knows what George Wagner could have gone on to do. Mm -hmm. Who knows if he could have rallied through what he was going through, all that, that strain and stress and trouble. But he dies that afternoon. And he's buried uh, by his brothers in Armstrong Cemetery in Warren County. And he is remembered as one of the very best and they call they say that his death deprives indiana of one of her most prominent citizens and honored soldiers wow the last person i wanted to talk about is pleasant hope not just because he has a really great name although that is a really great name but um when he was 24 years old in 1859 he married josie curd and by 1860, the census lists him as the head of household. He owns four slaves, all of whom are female, ranging in age from 6 to 80, which I think is kind of an interesting combination. But um, in 1861, Pleasant and Josie had a daughter whose name is Annie. And in November of that same year, Pleasant enlists in the Confederate Army at Paris, Tennessee. He musters into Company D. 46th Tennessee Infantry as a sergeant. He gets captured with his brothers, Adam and William, in April of 1862 at Island Number 10. He's sent to Camp Douglas up in Illinois. But they are exchanged in September at Vicksburg and returned to service. He keeps rising through the ranks so that he eventually becomes a captain while stationed at Camp Cummings near Mobile in April of 1864. He writes a letter to his daughter, who at that point would have only been about three. And he says, Dear child, it is with pleasure and delight that I write you a few lines, which will be the first letter you ever received, and one, too, which I hope you will preserve until you can read it. By the misfortunes of war, I have been separated from your mama, but by the blessings of God, I hope to return to you, never more to leave you until death shall separate us. My dear and only child, be a good girl. Ever love and obey your affectionate mama. And don't forget your first letter writer who has not nor never will forget you. And who daily prays to God in his infinite mercy to spare, 
bless, and protect you amid the troubles of this world. And should you live to be old, may God bless you and prepare your soul in this life to go to that happy world after death. Your father, P.M. Hope. On November the 30th, 1864, the 46th Tennessee advanced across the fields at Carnton as part of William Quarles' brigade, Edward Walthall's division. The 46th took about 125 men into battle and lost roughly 100. One of the fallen was Pleasant M. Hope. He rests today at Carnton in the Tennessee section, grave number 33. That is such an incredible story. And it's just the these soldiers left behind something. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter which side that they were on. Mm-hmm. They left behind a wife or a mother and a father, or they left behind children. And they came here, and they fought with everything that they had. Mm-hmm. And the ones that lived went back home to those people. Mm-hmm. The ones that died never got to see them again. And that's just a small part of the story that plays out here for us. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think that it's doing this gives us the opportunity to spend a little bit of time talking about these soldiers that we almost never get a chance to bring up on a regular tour. And our visitors never really get a chance to hear about unless they kind of prod about. Oh, well, all of us have favorites that, that end up right. surfacing sometimes. So if you come to take a tour, ask. Ask yeah. the person you're with, you know, who's somebody out here that's important to you? When we do extended tours, a lot of times we mm-hmm. end those out in the cemetery, and that gives us a chance to talk about some of the guys that are out there. But ask next time you come <laughs> in. Who's somebody you, whose story you just really love here? And if this episode has got you curious, we've got some... Uh, sources we can talk about. Yeah, too. As always. Uh, two of the best books that you're going to be able to read uh, that where you can learn about some of the guys that fought here are two books that have been written by our CEO, Eric Jacobson. One of those is For Cause and For Country, which tells the story of the Battle of Franklin and the affair at Spring Hill. And in the midst of the narrative, he meant, he will uh, sort of include biographical data. He'll tell you about some of these guys, what they did before the war, sometimes what they did afterwards. Another one is Baptism of Fire. As Eric was researching for, for Cause and for Country, he encountered three brand-new regiments that were recruited shortly before here. The 44th Missouri, as I mentioned earlier with Robert Bradshaw, was one of those. But he found them so interesting that they were seeing battle really for the first time here that he decided to go back and do some more research, wrote a book about them called Baptism of Fire. And at the whole second half, really, of that book tells some of their stories, and so you can do a deep dive there. And then even the McGavick Cemetery book, if you take a look at that, the first third or so of that book tells about the creation of the cemetery, but the rest of it lists those guys that are buried out there, at least the ones we know. And he has included short little bio information about some of those guys as well. So those are some of the places you can learn about these guys. Mm-hmm. You have another resource for us? Uh for just the soldiers that fought at Franklin, mm-hmm. we have the soldier files on our website, and you can go to it, uh, boft.org, and go to the Learn tab, and you'll see Soldiers of Franklin, and you can pick either the Confederate Army or the Federal Army, and you can follow, and it's alphabetized. You just follow along with that. And, and there's can, scads of those guys in there now. Oh, my goodness. And it seems like we're adding more and more every day because we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if there's a soldier that you know about and you don't see their uh, file on there, Give us a couple months. 
I'm sure it'll pop it may up. Show up. Uh, and if you, you are sitting at home listening to this episode, you've got some information on a soldier that you know is not on the website, by all means, send it to us. Let us know. Uh, and then there's a, a couple different books. If you just wanted to learn about soldiers' lives, there's three different books I would recommend. One, specifically related to the Confederate Army here, is Larry J. Daniels' Soldiering in the Army of Tennessee. You want to know about the day-to-day lives of these soldiers that made up Hood's army by November 64. That is the book. And the other two, they're a little bit dated, but it's Bell Wiley's uh, The Life of Billy Yank and The Life of Johnny Reb. And it's not a lot of biographical information, but it is everything you would want to know about the common life of a foot soldier. And while all of these guys have different conditions that make them not so much maybe the common soldier, Mm -hmm. They all fit the same rough footprint, mm-hmm. and it's it's just those two books. You kind of have to see it uh, and, and, and read it. It's it's a a deep dive into the minutia of a soldier's life. So those are my three. Uh, I totally second both uh, of Eric's books, the For Cause of Your Country and Baptism of Fire. I think mm-hmm. to understand this battle, you kind of have to read those. Mm-hmm. Once again, I want to thank you for listening to The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. And we know uh, that you are out there listening to this, and we want to assure you that we're going to continue to keep this content coming to you. We've got uh, two episodes every month. These episodes are stacked up right now, waiting to come out and be heard by you. So make sure that you like and subscribe to the podcast. Keep up with us on Facebook as the episodes get shared there. We look forward to seeing you on the battlefield.